Hello and welcome to another episode of the Leaders Sport Business Podcast. My name is James Emmett. I'm the editorial director here at Leaders and I'm sitting in the Leaders studio with my great good colleague, Mr. David Krishnan. David, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm the content director here at Leaders. Sorry, I thought um, your name preceded you. I, sh- I didn't need to introduce you with a, with a, t- with a, a trivial title. My David. name should only precede my job title. You're how are you, James? I'm all right, yeah. It's, um, well, it's review season. We're, right now, do you know what? It? I was just thinking, we're sort of chugging along to the end of the year, aren't we? I was just thinking, what am I going to do after I've finished in here with you? I'm going to go and open our human resource app and I'm going to attempt to write in a peer review for one of my colleagues which is what we have to do yeah why are you raising your eyebrows no, I'm, just, I'm just trying to work out which colleague ah right but um, don't say but don't say I won't say but I am I'm a fan of a peer review but I'm less of a fan of the human resources system that we use how's that as diplomacy is that okay yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, we're not quite winding down. We're we're bringing you um, we're bringing you these weekly podcasts for a start, and our fabulous new weekly newsletter, worth knowing, which comes out on Wednesdays. The podcast to clear up a little bit of confusion in the marketplace, David. A little bit of feedback. Um, well, this new weekly podcast. Why does it not come out every week? That's the question. And you know what? A legit question. Uh, because it does come out every week, apart from one week a month, where we have our Leaders in Focus uh, episode, uh, which is the one that we record at IMG, which is mainly done as a, a broadcast thing. It's a very snazzy, uh, sort of smoky backstage kind of environment, very atmospheric. Um, it's um, part relaxed conversation, part Film noir, for, film noir. Formal interrogation. Indeed, yeah. yeah. Um, and we had Alex Green on last week, the European sports chief for Amazon Prime Video. Amazing timing, David. You Well, I mean, certainly timing. Yeah. So he was on. Alex Green, love Alex Green, have um, done various bits and pieces with him in the past. Very accomplished, very competent man who has put... Amazon Prime in the position now of being an established sports broadcaster. He's brought an organisation from this sort of mysterious place of, oh, Amazon, they've got so much money, what can they, blah, blah, blah. Now they're an established sports broadcaster. People have very solid expectations of them, about them, both, you know, from a consumer perspective and a business perspective. He comes along, does his um, interview slash interrogation with us within... I'm going to say within half an hour of his departure from the building, we're receiving the press release about the Premier League's new rights deal, uh, £6.7 billion, uh, a revenue uplift uh, for the next four-year cycle of rights. Sky's got a load of games, TNT's got a load of games, Amazon, no. They they did not retain their package. And, of course, we didn't talk about that um, in the interview. And, of course, we don't know, and Alex Green wasn't saying either way, we don't know whether um, Amazon even submitted a bid. And I think it's really interesting, some of the commentary. And, of course, this is a deal that everybody is analysing in the the LinkedIn sports industry echo chamber um, over the past few days. But it's interesting that a lot of the commentary is that the Premier League uh, – it's sort of job done for Amazon. They've they've dipped their toes in. The packages that they have currently weren't offered in the new deal, which was the... Well, that's uh, crucial, right? 
yeah, which was the full match days last week and the full match day around Boxing Day and I think the 27th of December, which obviously ties in with uh, big shopping moments uh, and the quest to obviously get people spending on the Amazon websites. But it feels as though if I was to guess... I would suggest that they probably didn't bid as a result of that. Who knows? And, and yes. we probably will never know for sure because um, Amazon certainly aren't saying. Well, and the, and you know, it is is in the Premier League's interest to suggest that they did bid. I am with you, though. I think uh, I'm sure there would have been initial conversations, and actually, it is worth listening to that episode. The interview is an interesting one, if I may say so myself. Even if, you know, retrofitting it to an environment where Amazon did not get and perhaps did not bid for the Premier League rights, because Alex is really interesting on how negotiate, how rights negotiations work now in general, but for Amazon. And there was a, there was a little bit in there about the, expectations that rights holders now have of Amazon. They're not getting freebies. You know, they're not being brought in for discount rates in the hope that they'll come bigger uh, and for more next time around. And there was maybe a sense that the Premier League created that package for them, to specifically for Amazon, to lure Amazon into a rights-buying scenario. And that's just not happening anymore. It's worth adding that starting next season, Amazon will have a top pick game every week from the Champions League in the UK, which is a a more regular drumbeat of uh, big football content. It's also worth, I think, thinking about Amazon as a a truly global player in sports rights here. They've just taken a package of ICC cricket in Australia. They've just done a deal for their first ever boxing in the US. There's lots of stuff going on in lots of markets, NASCAR in the US. Amazon is very active in many markets around the world. And it will be interesting to see as the Premier League now moves into the international phase of its next broadcast rights cycle, Mm. which markets, if any, uh, Amazon actually looks to pick up Premier League rights. And I think that might be the way that Amazon and the Premier League retain a relationship for the next few years, at least. Or documentaries. You know, they're going great guns on um, some very well-respected, brilliantly produced um, documentaries. Not necessarily in Alex's purview, that. Right, we're going to play our silly LinkedIn game that we like to play with each other um, shortly. But later on, we'll be introducing a very special guest for this episode. She's going to be calling in from New York City. It's Carolyn Tish Blodgett. Um, Now, she is the founder and CEO of um, something called Next3, which is a family investment firm. What's the family investment firm of the Tish family. The Tish family, of course, is the owner of the New York Giants, or at least the half owner of the New York Giants. They have held a 50% stake in the Giants since 1991 when Carolyn's grandfather um, bought it, and they still co-own it with the Mara family. Carolyn is since November the lead owner and governor of the NJNY Gotham FC. NWSL franchise, that's women's soccer, top tier women's soccer in the US. And she invested literally days before they won the championship this year. Um, You have something to say about her, David? No, I was just going to say she's coming up later and I'm looking forward to speaking to her. She was also the head of marketing at Peloton. 
That's also something interesting about her. Yes, and okay. we'll talk to her about that when she joins us. But I know, James, that you have connected with Carolyn already yeah. on LinkedIn. Yeah. Your first connections on LinkedIn. I'm just looking at your your latest batch okay. of connections. Let's do two each. Yes, yeah. uh, we've got we've had um, some praise and actually some complaints about this section. So let's keep it. You know. Well, tell me about Lily Hawkins, who you seem to have connected with this in the last few days. Okay. Lily Hawkins is the Global Marketing Director at MNC Saatchi Group, you know, the big advertising giant. Mm. And uh, I've actually connected with her because I'm doing a bit of digging, David. I want to find out about um, seismic moves in the industry that we call sport and sports marketing. Steve Martin. You'll know him as a beacon of um, sports marketing wisdom for the first time in decades, it seems, no longer at the top of MNC Saatchi Sports and Entertainment. He's out. He's left the business uh, along with Jamie Wynn Morgan. Um, Rumour is that they're going to start their own shop. I don't know anything about that. I haven't talked to anyone about it, but I'm intending to hit Lily up and get some uh, get the insider information there. Shall I ask you a question about someone that you've connected with recently? Mm, go on. Um, okay. Uh, how's about... Uh, oh, Jeff Mostyn. Jeff Mostyn is one of those connections uh, that has been a long time coming. Long time coming. I can't actually remember. I should probably look it up, but I can't actually remember when I connected with Jeff. He's the former chairman. Uh, he's just accepted. He's just accepted. Right, he's so just something's accepted. prodded his mouth. He's been, yeah. you know, pending for a while. Or I've been pending for a while yeah. in his uh, inbox. Um, but Jeff's logged onto LinkedIn and uh, connected with me. And I'm delighted he has because he is a wonderful character. Chairman of uh, Bournemouth. Favourite chairman? Could be. Long- Favorite chairman? That's an interesting question. No, I'll is come he back your to you. Favorite I'll come back to you on that. I would be. He'd be in my top five. Father of Janine, of course. Yes. Um, one of the biggest legends in sport. Exactly. Um, so I'm thrilled to be now formally connected online with uh, Jeff, who's now in an honorary role as uh, as Bournemouth go great guns in yeah. the Premier League. They're doing well. On Neil, what about Neil Hopkins? Well, it's funny you mentioned Lily because Neil is the director. Uh, and global head of strategy at MNC Saatchi. Did you have the same plan as me? Yeah, and Neil was also with us at the uh, Leaders Sport Performance Summit uh, a few weeks ago at the Oval, uh, and was by all accounts an excellent contributor on stage there. So, uh, yes, uh, keen to uh, hear a bit more about uh, what MNC have planned for 2024 uh, with a, a slightly rejigged leadership team. Mm-hmm. One more. One more, and then we'll move on. What about? Tell me about Harry Wallop, who has a great name. Yeah, Harry Wallop is um, a journalist um, who does anything weird and wacky in, I would say, retail or lifestyle. Um, basically, if there's a new pork pie on the market that claims to be, um, you know, inedible, he's guaranteed to be there trying to eat it. Um, and he's done something recently, which I think is going to appear in the newsletter. Yeah, we'll link to it. Um, which is a fabulous piece all about data, data collection that supermarkets do through their loyalty cards and the richness of it and what they're able to do and the interpretations and insights that come off it and how they package them and sell them or share them with their partner organizations in different industries. Uh, Fascinating piece, lots of implications for the sports industry there. Harry Wallop, also a a former neighbor of mine in the um, N16, N5 area of London. Interesting. Uh, Right, Carolyn Tish Blodgett coming up soon. But first of all, James, should we wrap up the sports industry week in three minutes? Yeah, let's do it. 
Right, you turn that way round, I'll turn this way round, and together David will have the full 360 covered. This is 180 Seconds of Sports Biz. And let's start in the moneyed world of golf, as Masters champion John Rahm has become the latest and arguably highest profile player to switch sides to Saudi-backed Live Golf. The Spaniard, currently number three in the world, has accepted a reported $400 million fee to leave the PGA Tour and begin playing on the new circuit. The PGA and DP World Tours are currently in strategic negotiations over a merger with the Greg Norman-run disruptor that is Liv, so politically and financially this may well prove to be a masterstroke for Ram. Three bids have been submitted to FIFA for the hosting rights for the 2027 Women's World Cup tournament, with a decision due in May. USA and Mexico are teaming up, as are European trio Belgium, Germany and the Netherlands, along with Brazil. The competition and the competitors themselves will come as validation for the strong work being done across the women's game, not least by FIFA's head of women's football, Sarai Berman. In the WSL, Arsenal broke the attendance record this weekend, drawing 59,042 to the Emirates Stadium for a game against Chelsea. The drinks are on CAA baseball super agent Nez Balelo this week after he negotiated the richest contract in sports history on behalf of Japanese baseball superstar Shohei Otani, by a distance MLB's most marketable player. It was a protracted process, but after it, Otani has chosen the LA Dodgers as his new home. At his request, much of the payment of the $700 million 10-year contract will be deferred, allowing the Dodgers' scope to build a winning team around its new star Asset. Music and podcast streaming giant Spotify has begun the process of cutting 17% of its workforce, making a total of 1,500 employees redundant as part of aggressive efforts to cut costs. In its latest results, Spotify had reported a profit of 65 million euros for the three months to September. Its first quarterly profit for more than a year was driven by price rises and higher subscriber numbers. Spotify wants to reach a billion users by 2030, and it currently has 601 million, up from 340. 5 million at the end of 2020. Former F1 commercial chief Brandon Snow has landed a new job at Redbird Capital as managing director of Redbird Development Group. Snow started at Jerry Cardinal's investment company in November. Former footballer Zlatan Ibrahimovic has also joined the group as an operating partner and senior advisor to Redbird-owned AC Milan. And finally, Guinness has signed what it's calling its largest ever investment in sport, becoming title sponsor of the Six Nations and women's Six Nations rugby tournaments, taking over from TikTok in the latter role. And Netflix has announced it will broadcast an exhibition tennis game between Rafael Nadal and Carlos Alcaraz in Las Vegas in March. That was 180 seconds of sports biz. Let's bring in our guest, uh, and it's the CEO and founder of Next3, Carolyn Tish Blodgett. Carolyn, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. How are you doing, Carolyn? It looks, um, I mean, we're in this sort of, I'm going to say sterile studio environment here. It's germ-free. It's also very bright white. You don't know what time of day it is here. I um, do not. Well, it's mid-afternoon. <laughs> uh, I, pres- I presume you're morning where you are? It is morning in New York. The birds are singing. Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. The Giants won on Monday Night Football last night. All is good in the world, in this part of the world, at least. Yes. 
one of those stories that um, David and I just ran through there in our 180 seconds of sports biz was this news um, coming in the last few days of Shahei Atani in Major League Baseball making the move or agreeing to a massive new contract at the LA Dodgers. Presumably, um, and you're playing the role of our resident US, well, US resident, um, presumably you can't move for, for news about this in the, the sports pages over in the US now, Carolyn. Absolutely. I, I read a lot of sports business coverage, and it seems to be, uh, you know, top headline in all of those. It even feels like the newsletter, I, you know, I read a football newsletter, I read a, a now a women's soccer newsletter, it feels like it's somehow seeped into all of those as well. So it's definitely everywhere right now. It sure is. Uh, $700 million uh, over 10 years. That doesn't really tell the full story of the deal and the way that it's structured, though. Um, and James, we were talking about this off air uh, a little bit over earlier. Lunch. Over lunch. And uh, so that's how far the news has, has uh, seeped, Carolyn. And we're talking about it here in London uh, as well. This is, by pretty much any measure, the richest sports contract ever signed by an athlete. But the interesting part of this is the way that Otani and his uh, agent at uh, CAA, uh, Nez Bolello, have structured the deal in that they have are intending to defer a very, very large part of payment uh, in order to sort of circumnavigate, entirely legally circumnavigate um, the uh, MLB's various sort of salary rules and regulations in order for the team to have the best chance at continuing to build a winning team around mm -hmm. their new star man. So, so what's the deal? Basically, he gets paid a couple of million a year in his playing days. And then as soon as he hangs up his gloves on his bat and becomes an independent contractor, may as well be doing something like mowing the lawn at Dodgers Stadium. They're paying him $68 million a year or something That, like that. seems to be... Because he's not playing staff, so that doesn't fall within the MLB rules. Exactly. That seems to be the size of it. It's an interesting new model for the way that these elite, elite-level athlete contracts are uh, negotiated mm. and uh, structured and, you know, quite creative and smart in its own way. Um, what he wants most of all, I would imagine, is to be part of a winning team and he's given his new employers the best shot at uh, doing that or continuing to try and do that. Presumably the league will have to rubber stamp a deal like this or... I mean, I, I presume that is the case. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, because it, it strikes me that there's quite a lot of this sort of creative, it's not necessarily creative accounting, but, you know, creative rule stretching um, going on to either fit within salary um, cap rules of some way, shape or form, um, financial sustainability regulations. And it's by no means just in the US where they have like, very clear salary cap Um uh, stipulations over here in the UK, we're we're seeing it with the Premier League. Everton have just been, um, you know, fine. Well, have just been sanctioned uh, for breaching financial uh, regulations. We've got pending charges with Manchester City, Chelsea. Uh, I hear talk that the Premier League, um, the Premier League owners or the Premier League CEOs uh, are going to bring up amortisation in one of their next meetings because that is a creative way that Chelsea have been uh, sneaking their way through um, FFP regulations of late. Seeing it in all sorts of sports, as you say, Formula One as well, another example where 
a new set of financial rules have had to be created in an effort to make the sport sustainable or more sustainable. But what that does is, as you say, in the early years of, of new regulations, it there are inevitably loopholes and interpretations and precedents being set. And in the end, I would imagine the the big winners are the the lawyers. Mm, as ever. Well, maybe it's just a sort of um, ebb and flow cycle. Rules are made, then they're stretched, then they're remade to account for uh, where they've been stretched. Maybe that's life, David. Maybe we should be philosophical about this. Um from one massive uh, groundbreaking um, playing contract to another, John Rahm, um, that deal, $400 million it's being reported as the fee that is taking him um, to live golf. What's going on there? I mean, we had Max Hamilton out with us in India a couple of weeks ago, the commercial director for the DP World Tour. And I don't mind saying then he was kind of tearing his hair out at the prospect of this happening. This has kind of been in the post for a little while. But I thought that Live Golf and the PGA Tour and DP World Tour were all friends now, right? Or um, I thought there was, you know, singing from the same hymn sheet, there was some sort of entente cordiale as they negotiated a merger or a strategic investment between them all. What's going on? Why are they still in sort of poacher gamekeeper roles? Well, who knows? And I actually think there are very few people in the world probably who know exactly the full picture of what's going on mm -hmm. at the moment and how these negotiations are going. It seems to be that sort of thing. We know that when that strategic framework, as it was called, between Live Golf, the Saudi-backed series fronted uh, by Greg Norman, but very heavily um, part of Saudi Arabia's investment in sport and then the PGA Tour, there were very, very few people in that conversation before it was announced to the fury of many of the players mm. um, who felt a little bit blindsided. Now we have a situation where those negotiations are apparently continuing. It's very, very uh, unclear how advanced they are, whether they've indeed moved forward. There seem to be some reports one week that the talks are off. Other times, it seems to be uh, more positive and a more positive mood. I think we're in the middle of what will be a very, very complex negotiation. Even when that strategic framework was announced, there was some detail in there, but it was clear that it was a very basic framework. The devil is clearly in the detail with all of this in terms of all aspects of the entire sport and what the future landscape looks like. Now, you have the PGA Tour in amongst this news of John Rahm uh, switching to live, number three golfer in the world, as you said, the biggest name yet to move, Masters champion, Ryder Cup star, moving to the, the live tour. As that's happening, you also have, it seems, a whole new negotiation opened up between the PGA Tour and a new group. Mm -hmm which is the, it's called the Strategic Sports Group, SSG. And it seems to be a clubbing together of pretty much any billionaire in the US who has an investment in the uh, in in a sports body. The, the names on this list are extraordinary. Uh, Fenway, uh, Jerry Cardinal. It, it, it's, it's around about 15 um, kind of owners or groups who have ownership stakes. Actually, do you know what, Carolyn? I haven't seen the Tish family on this uh, <laughs> on this group. You're not not yet into the yet. Uh, the the complicated world of golf politics. Exactly, not yet. Yeah, probably for the best. Um, probably for the best. But I. Uh, 
this so the, there's there are two negotiations going on right now, right? Live and the PGA Tour and the PGA Tour and SSG. Are these negotiations complementary? Are they opposing? We just don't know. We don't know anything and nobody in golf knows anything. You said there are two going on. There are two we know about. Right. And, you know, it is, it's as clear as that at the moment. What John Rahm has done is made a choice to sign a big check to switch to the, the Live Tour. He may well have done that. He will probably have some kind of better steer on this than than we do. It may well be that he has uh, seen the way that the the wind is blowing and has decided that it's uh, it's the live life for him. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, maybe he's a genius. Maybe he has taken a huge, you know, not just hit, you know, generational change in uh, in his sort of family's finances yeah. in order to make this move. Whilst at the same time, suspected that before too long, everybody could be back together again. Do you know what? If the um, the rule bending thing, if um, that was a guarantee that the lawyers would win, this situation that's going on in golf is pretty much a guarantee that anyone in golf is going to win. There is so much money floating around in golf right now that the answer to any question in golf is someone's going to chuck more money at that. And so- the, and the the interesting thing about John Rahm is great player. Ryder Cup star, Masters champion. I would argue he's absolutely not transcended the sport of golf. I think you've probably got two golfers in the world, Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy, who have done that. Uh, The money as swilling about is absolutely extraordinary. Um, Should we move on to an organisation that... uh, sadly doesn't seem to be swimming in money and that is the news that Spotify very suddenly um, has announced this round of redundancies downsizing um, to try to cut costs um, to keep the cut costs under control even though um, they recorded um, better than normal financial results of late. Uh, I mean, I say it's a shame because, I, I, you know, personally, I'm a user of Spotify and I enjoy the output. And I think the revolution that's gone on in music streaming is to the benefit of consumers, for sure, if not necessarily artists. Um, what's happening there, Dave? Well, I mean, it's indicative of a wider trend yeah. uh, in that we have seen all sorts of tech companies, media companies, platforms uh, reduce headcount. Over the past uh, few months, market conditions, um, perhaps a sense that in some cases uh, these organisations have become a bit bloated and mm. there's a mood now in uh, in more challenging economic times for a leaner, meaner uh, machine. We'll have to wait and see what, if any, impact it has to the end user in terms of, you know, to your point, experience and how people utilize the spotify platforms but certainly yeah certainly not good news and obviously there's a you know there's a there's a corporate element to this but of course there's lots and lots and lots of personal elements to this as well it's funny in sort of straightened times to see how big finance makes the switch from kind of revenue and growth to profit you know it's always in hard times when big finance says well we need to make profit now and that's always when pain comes. Carolyn, I want to bring you in at this uh, at this point because um, 
I think some of the experiences that people are going through in, in Spotify might resonate with you. You you ran marketing at Peloton for um, near enough five years from 2016 to 2020. Another amazing digital company that kind of bloomed up uh, from the ground up, went great guns and probably has been through a bit of, well, not quite boom, boom and bust, but certainly, uh, you know, big and small cycles. What will the top brass at Spotify be feeling now? Well, so I would, I actually started when I was at Pepsi uh, many years ago before Peloton, I lived through a lot of layoffs and you, you know, I, I feel for the people obviously that were laid off and, and impacted by it. It's also, I think what people don't talk about enough about layoffs is how it impacts the people that stay. You live in this world of constantly feeling like I'm supposed to now be doing more work, but all I'm thinking about is when the next layoffs are coming. How does this impact me? How does it impact my role? So it they it has such an impact on the culture. Again, you know, obviously the people that leave, but also the people that stay. So when I was at Peloton, I was there, you know, as you said, there was the sort of the, the high growth period and then COVID happened, which just was fuel on the fire growth. And then obviously there was the kind of post-COVID dip, which is I, I had left by then. But, you know, when when COVID happened, one of the first questions, well, the first question was, how are we going to deliver, you know, going from hundreds of bikes a day to thousands of bikes a day? The second question, the question I asked our team really quickly was, is this new demand? Is this incremental people that we didn't think were ever going to buy a Peloton bike? Or is this pulled forward demand? Is this people that we would have maybe gotten to buy a bike, you know, two, three years ago that are now buying it today? How you answer that question is fundamentally how you decide how to build the rest of the organization. And I think Spotify, you know, obviously, you know, just looking from the outside was probably in a similar place of like, was this sustainable growth or was this a moment in time? Um, and unfortunately, when you get that answer wrong is when you start to, to see layoffs like we see here. Yeah. From a with your marketing hat on, um, and you know, with your marketing expertise, I guess a, a lot of your job at Peloton was external communication, right? Positioning of the brand, how you're talking to the market, how you're talking to consumers. How difficult is it as a marketer and as a communications person to be to to maintain positivity in your message whilst everyone can see that internally? you know, nobody plans to do that, to have to cut 1,500 jobs. Right. Well, for, I was not there when that happened at Peloton, but I can imagine, you know, I think so much of, I think, strong brands is is being authentic and being true to your voice. And it's really hard to have that message when internally things are not going the way that you plan. So I can't, I, again, I wasn't there during that moment at Peloton, but I can imagine how difficult that is when, again, I think authenticity and, and trust with your consumers, at least for Peloton, was such a core part of our brand. Um, Carolyn, should we talk about what you're doing now? Because, uh, you know, we've got to live in the present, haven't we? And what you're doing now, I imagine, is still celebrating a phenomenal championship win for um, for Gotham. How do I mean, I see Gotham written down a lot. Um, NJNY Gotham FC. What, how do you how do we how do we do we say Gotham? Do we say N? Do we say Gotham? I think we say Gotham. We just say Gotham. to Gotham. You're literally coming off the back of um, this NWSL championship win. Um, and you are relatively new to the organization. Are you still on a high? Is the organization still sort of, you know, celebrating or is it all on to the next thing now? 
well, I relatively new is a is a nice way to describe it. We closed the deal on Wednesday, flew to San Diego on Thursday, met the rest, all the players on Thursday afternoon, won the championship on Saturday. So it was really a, you know, thrown in to to a pinnacle moment. But what was Carolyn, really Carolyn, you know, you know people, you know owners come in and say, right, I, I'm gonna come in and I want to win the league within 10 years. And that's like a big ambition. And you and you're like, I want to win it within like, 10 hours. 72 hours is all you have to win that championship. <laughs> well, well did, did you consider did you consider selling on Sunday? <laughs> we definitely got met text messages from people being like, you should just get out now. You've done it. <laughs> you got your ring, you're out. Um, but no, we we do not feel that way. Um and Interestingly, actually, so my grandfather, we got into sports as a family because my grandfather um, bought 50% of the New York Giants, the football team, 30 some odd years ago. He also bought into the team and then it was a few months, not a few days, but, you know, call it the same, then won the Super Bowl met a few months later. So we feel like this is now our family legacy when we come into a team. This is how we start. Um, but anyway, it's the we are, touch, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we are we are very much still on the, you know, riding the high, but also in a reality of there's so much more to do. I think I had so many interesting conversations with players, with staff, with with the team on Saturday night where, you know, we're celebrating, there's champagne flowing. And so many people said, you know, we are so excited about this championship. We just they put in the work to to get there, but we are just getting started. This really still feels like day one, maybe even day zero for this team, because I think all of us share this collective vision that there is so much more opportunity, both on the on the soccer side to continue to, to get better and win championships, and also on the business side to really build a global sports franchise that we all see as possible. So on that, on that latter point, you come in, win, but there's still a big old checklist of things that you want to work through. What does that checklist look like at the moment, particularly on the, the sort of front office, the business side of things? Yeah. So when I, uh, so we talked about my time at Peloton a little bit, and I actually see so many parallels between the moment I joined Peloton in 2016 and, and when I joined Gotham here in 2023. And so <clears throat> when I joined Peloton, it was this incredible product that nobody had ever heard of. We always talked about it as like the world's best kept secret. And so my job as head of marketing was to come in and really tell the world about it. Gotham is in so many, is so similar to that right now. We have the best players in the world now validated by, you know, winning the championship, but we felt that way. Anyway, we have women that have just come off of winning the world cup and they're playing in our backyard. And our job is to come in and tell eventually the world, but right now the New York, New Jersey market about this incredible product. And so I think about some of the things we did at Peloton. I would point to three major things we did at Peloton that really helped fuel its growth that I would say apply to Gotham. The first is, you know, I talked about this incredible product on the field. We had this incredible product in Peloton that we then need to go create an end-to-end -end consumer experience around it so that we were delighting our consumers at all times and they would share with their friends. When I think about, again, Gotham, we have the best product on the field. How do we create an end-to-end fan experience so that fans show up to games and want to go come back and tell all their friends about it? The second piece is around one of the things, again, that worked really well for us at Peloton is we took our instructors and we helped them create personal brands to really become celebrities in their own right. If you think about, you guys are in London, so you think about Sam Yo or Leanne or Ben or whoever that your favorite Peloton instructor is, they're now household names in a way that 
we absolutely can do, again, at Gotham, think about Midge Purse, Lynn Williams, Ali Krieger, who just retired. They, these, they are celebrities in their own right. We need to go help them create that stardom and, and really become household names too. Mm-hmm. And then I think we the actually, third... Oh, oh, sorry, sorry go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, no, you go on. Go on. Okay, go last on. point is um, just on the community. So if you're, again, if you're, I don't know if you guys are Peloton riders, if you're part of the community, you you know that the Pel- the Peloton community is its it is its engine for growth. The community has been so loyal from the beginning. People you know, join the, they buy it, they think they're buying a spin bike and they realize that they're actually really joining this community and and building this network around them. Gotham is the same way. There is this really loyal, rabid followers currently. Our job as new owners coming in is to help go build a bigger community and spread that community around so that we can have that same, you know, flywheel effect with within uh, Gotham as well. Yeah. Um, on the whole, um, turning the, um, I guess, turning the talent into stars, which Peloton has done so well. David and I actually have an old colleague um, who I think we both follow on social media, who is absolutely obsessed with two particular Peloton instructors. And, uh, which ones? Yeah, his, I don't know. I no. personally don't know them. I could I could pick them out in a lineup for you for sure, uh, but I don't know the names. But yeah, he's actually working at the National Hockey League now, mm. Mm. so not too far from the Peloton um, Peloton headquarters. Yes, exactly. I quite like this um, this idea. I mean, it's a it's a snappy little headline, isn't it? The Peloton thinking that's aiming to transform women's football and Gotham in particular. When you were sort of lining up this investment with Next Three. How did that process go? Who's kind of courting who? How are you able to get your vision across and have that kind of validated back to you so you know, yes, this is not this is a this is a real investment opportunity and also something that I can have a hand in shaping. How give us a sense of how those kind of, you know, um negotiations work. Yeah, so maybe I'll I'll take a step back and and how we got here because I think that that will help answer yeah, the question. Sure. So I started getting involved. So as I said before, my family co-owns the New York Giants and has for the last thirty years. And so uh, after I left Peloton, I started getting involved with the Giants in a kind of broad ownership representative capacity and bringing some of the things that I had done at Peloton to the Giants. And it was pretty clear pretty quickly that the world of sports is changing. I don't need to tell you guys this, that there's so much disruption happening in sports. And we as owners for the last 30 years could sit and kind of watch those disruptions pass us by, or we could come, we could go build, take a front row seat to those disruptions and even help actually drive some of those disruptions. So we started mm-hmm. Next Three as our sports investment arm of our family's office. And we we intended to spend the first year in really listening mode. And really just kind of sit back and say, where do we think these disruptions are happening? What do we think are blips and kind of trends for that it will be very fast? What do we think are really real structural changes? And sign after sign pointed us to women's soccer and the NWSL in particular. So then we said, okay, we're, you know, we're interested in the NWSL. Where do we want to be? And we looked at, we spoke to a bunch of teams. We looked at a bunch of markets and we really believed in the vision that the Gotham team had laid out about they wanted to be the to build New York and New Jersey into the capital of women's soccer around the world. And we believed in that vision. And I think very quickly realized that they understood the value that we could bring as strategic investors and um, and that we really all aligned, again, around this vision and the role that we could play in building out that vision. 
Let's talk a little bit, Carolyn, about the um, NWSL media deal that was signed um, just last month. ESPN, CBS, um, Prime Sports, Scripps, all involved, all working together. Yeah, Yeah. $60 million annually was uh, what has been reported. From a team ownership perspective, how transformative is that deal? Incredibly transformative. When I think about the challenges that women's sports in general have faced, um, and women's soccer in particular, visibility is at the top of the list. When I think about, you know, if you're a sports fan in the U.S. and in London, you turn on your TV on a Saturday afternoon, a Sunday afternoon, you're going to stumble upon men's sports in some form. You're not going to for women's sports until now. So it's just, it, you haven't, as a fan, you have not been able to, unless you're really looking for it, you have not been able to access women's sports in the same way. So it's really hard if you think about like a marketing funnel, it's really hard to get people into the funnel when they just don't have access to it. The media doesn't report on it as much. The It's not on TV. So being able to have these four networks come together to really create you know, commit to each other and commit to the U.S. and the world that they are going to cover women's soccer in a way that's never been done before is truly changing the trajectory of the league and the sport in general. There's so much positive momentum, as we all know, around women's sport in general, women's football, women's soccer uh, in particular On both sides of the Atlantic, actually, we just had, as we mentioned earlier, a uh, record, another record attendance in the uh, WSL here in um, England at the weekend um, with 60,000 people um, in attendance at the Emirates for for an Arsenal game. 59,042. Nearly, nearly 60,000. Where do you see the growing pains for, for women's football as it continues to develop? Good question. I think for us, it's, you know, as I said before, it's so much about kind of square. Step one is visibility. And obviously, you know, the TV deals are going to be a part of that. But I think there's so much more, you know, there is more to come. The second piece has historically been on the investment side. 99% of investments in sports has gone to the men's side. Again, I think you see that starting to change. But historically, that has been an issue. And I think the third, and, and I would say maybe as part of the, the investment side, if you just drill into certain areas, like look at sponsorship, for example, you see the, you know, headlines of multi-million dollar jersey sponsorship deals and, and cornerstone deals in men's sports. Angel City in the US has really, you know, set the path on what that can look like, but you don't see that same investment on the sponsorship side. So I think all of that is starting to change, but it's it's on us as team owners, it's on on all of us as governors of the league to really articulate the story of why fans need to invest it, you know, show up to games, create a fan experience that people want to come to, why brands should invest in this and kind of shift the conversation away from it's the right thing to do, you know, for the world to invest in women's sports and say it's the right thing financially for you to do to invest in women's sports. Yeah. Um, We had the um, sort of production chief for IMG on one of our shows not too long ago, and he was talking about um, the transformative work that they've been doing producing women's football with the WSL over here in the UK. We had an interesting question come in um, from someone who was watching. It was sort of an assumption, actually, sort of twisted into a question. And the assumption was that women's football will not be everything that it could 
be until there's controversy in it until there are until there's real contention and uh, a bit of beef basically um and it was interesting it was immediately responded to by this guy's like no 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 i don't think that's the case there's a collegiate atmosphere in women's football and it's you know all for one one for all and moving forward as a but as he was talking he sort of started to recognize that actually from a broadcast and airtime perspective controversy is what kind of fuels a lot of the discussion and also what motivates and drives people on all different sort of sides of the the stakeholder kind of table. What's your view on that, Carolyn? Now that you've launched yourself into, into women's sport, you're on the inside of it. Do you think that uh, it can continue going forward or, you know, in this spirit of um, collegiate effort? Or do you feel like a, a little bit of controversy, a little bit of beef will actually take it a bit further? I've never been asked this question before. No, um, and also I didn't tee you up for that, so I apologize. No, you didn't. Okay, <laughs> let's dive in. I would start by saying I don't think any sports league, sports team will live without controversy for very long. So we can all probably rest at night knowing the controversy will come. But I would say, you know, to take a step back, I guess I would maybe shift the conversation to what I was talking about before in terms of making athletes into stars. I think there's so many stories to be told about these players, about these teams, about the league that just hasn't been told before. I think there's, mm -hmm. you know, what I think about the parallel to the NFL right now is very focused on, you know, helmets off content. You know, they, they have shows like Quarterback and really getting to know the players as humans and so many interesting stories to tell. It's the same in women's soccer. Sorry that I keep calling it women's soccer, not women's football. Hard for no, me to do that. No, that's fine. But we, anyway. No, Auto-translate going it. on. Okay, so perfect. Fine, yeah. Okay, good. Um, so anyway, there's just, there's so many stories to tell. And I would say that's what's going to make this a really compelling, a compelling sport and bring in casual fans more than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, with your next three hat on um, and you talked about sort of the purpose of next three looking for those disruptive elements around sport and kind of working out uh, whether they're here to stay whether there's something that you can do to help to take them on or whether it's just a sort of flash in the pan and move on where do you think um, the next opportunity might be? I mean, uh, and I mean, the question I've got here is if you had all the money, all the time, all the tech resource in the world, what is the sort of disrupted force that you would like to bring and where? So we think about this a lot. Um, I would say, so we're looking at disruption across the the whole sports landscape. We think about where, how are fans, you know, if we've been in sports for the last 30 years, what is fandom going to look like for the next 30 years? How are people going to consume sports? How are people, what are the expectations around what a live game experience is going to look like? Why should I show up to an arena, you know, for a game? Why, um, what is my expectation as a fan around how I interact with players? The idea that, you know, you can DM your favorite player on Instagram and they might respond. It's such a different landscape than I think when, you know, any of us grew up watching sports. So say that's sort of broadly where we're focused. I would probably drill in if I was going to focus on one area on this media consumption. And, you know, if I had a crystal ball, like what, how are, you know, my kids, who are you know eight, six, and three, how are they going to consume sports 30 years ago versus how I did, you know, when I was growing up? That's probably the area that we're most interested in. Cause I think I don't think any of us know what it's going to look like, but I think we can all agree it's going to be really different than what it looks like today. Mm -hmm. And pickleball, are you hot on pickleball or not? <laughs> 
I, my mom loves pickleball. Um, yes, that's the correct tell- answer, Carolyn. It's for, it's for the older generation. That's my, I think that's it's my- a great sport to play. TBD on if everyone wants to watch it on correct. TV, but I think people love to play it. It's, it's the you're the first American who's spoken sense about pickleball to us for, for years. <laughs> that was an, I'm sure I'll be <laughs> chastised later for that. But yes, we have not done pickleball yet. Good, 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 good. Carolyn, tell us a little bit about how you split your time. You've got, obviously, uh, you talked about some of the, the work you've been doing with the, the Giants as part of the, the ownership group there. There's Next3 as the sort of overarching uh, vehicle, I guess. Obviously, you are thinking and doing a lot uh, with Gotham. What does What does a week look like? How much time are you spending... Uh, getting down into the detail on on various elements of how uh, how Gotham works. Tell us about it. Yeah, um, great question. I ask myself this every day. Um, so r- right now we are very deep in Gotham and uh, you know helping the team r- really understand our vision and, and where we want to take the team. Uh, I, I can't tell you. I know what a week looks like. I can tell you what yesterday looked like was an. It, back-to-back meetings on Gotham, you know, working with the current team, uh, figuring out sponsorship, figuring out ticket sales, um, ran home to have dinner, quick early dinner with my kids, and then went straight to the Giants Monday night football game against the Packers, um, met with sponsors there. It's it's really, you know, I would say every day is different, but figuring out the balance along the way. Do you get involved in, uh, because we're right in the middle of it here uh, at Leaders, uh, of a quite a complex end-of-year reviews process? Yes, yes, we definitely have that going on too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and do you do Secret Santa at Gotham? You know, I don't know. Um, my family mm. we celebrate Hanukkah, so I'm also a night. Tonight is night six of three kids oh, yes. of Hanukkah. It's Happy a lot Hanukkah. of thank you. It's a yeah. um, lot of coordination of multiple, <laughs> you know, different things going on. Thankfully, I don't also it's- have Secret Santa. It's all logistics in the end, isn't it? Exactly. It's just, but, it's, but it's holiday season. It's great food. It's lots of people. That's it. Too many people that you don't want to see. That's <laughs> Exactly. That's we have eight nights about. of it. Great, great. Um, Carolyn, finally, we always like to finish these um, episodes by really just David and I um, indulging ourselves by talking about what we've read and watched recently. But um, uh, have you... I mean, obviously, you go to a lot of sport, but have you listened to, watched, read something recently that you've absolutely loved or that has made you really think? Mm. You've got any recommendations for us? Yes. Okay. I have. Well, so the new documentary comes out today on Netflix about the US Women's World Cup team. So I'm very excited to watch that. I have not yet. Um, I don't have a lot of time for watching and listening and reading these days, but I do love a good historical fiction book before I go to bed. I re- read about two pages a night, but it slowly get my way through. I think mm-hmm. my top one right now would be Curator of Broken Things, historic okay. World War II. No one's ever heard of it, but it's so good. World War mm. II historical fiction. And it's a trilogy. So you get three, three that for one recommendation. That really sounds up my street. I might uh, yeah. I have to look it up. It's great. Um, on the historical fiction World War Two vibe, um, have you read All the Light We Cannot See? Ah, uh, another good one. Great. Oh, that's fabulous. Oh, sorry. It's fabulous, for that. But yeah. 
The Netflix show is awful, though. It's one of these things where the book is amazing, the show, awful. I never awful. like when I, t- I have a different vision of what it's going to look like, and then they turn it into a show, and it's not that. You need to do it the other way around. You need to watch the show first and then read the book and discover that the book is so much it's better. It's so much better. I'm with you. Yeah. 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 But the book David, is so have you, good. Have you watched or read or have you consumed anything good? Um, I consumed quite an interesting BBC documentary, actually, which uh, caught my attention because, you know, I'm an Olympics man, James, and I was quite interested in a BBC World Service documentary about Paris's readiness for the 2024 Olympics. Yeah. And sum it I, up. Know, I, well, the way I will sum it up is quite a lot of the half hour documentary is concerned with quite a detailed explanation of why uh, the River Seine in Paris is so polluted. And it's clean now, though. You can swim in it now. Mm, it's cleanish. Okay. Um, and it's still not that clean, right. actually. Um, but it was genuinely, genuinely quite interesting uh, in amongst a sort of, you know, a, a listing of the many, many challenges that uh, Paris is going to face with the. Uh, the Olympics, not least the fact that they want to stage the opening ceremony along the Seine, along the Seine, yeah. which is going to be logis- back to logistics, uh, logistically and from a security point of view, incredibly challenging. Carolyn, have you ever swum in the Hudson? <laughs> I have not. Not well. on my bucket list. Not on no, the bucket no, list. No. 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 Wise. I think I'd rather swim in the Seine than the Hudson, mm. to be honest. One recommendation from me, um, although it's now over, so I guess go and see whatever the next thing it is that they do. But I watched um, Rumble Rematch the other day, David, uh, which is this um, immersive experience being um, put together by Richard Ayres' new team. It's the, um, well, hopefully it tours, actually, Carolyn. If it comes to the US, I definitely recommend you going to watch this. It's uh, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. It's a theatre piece that takes you back to the that time in Kinshasa, in Zaire. Uh, absolutely incredible. Genuinely feel like you're in a different place. Um, you can interact with all the actors, but they don't embarrass you. The use of archive, proper archive footage intermingled with, you know, the actors actually doing things. Absolutely extraordinary. And the rum cocktails were punchy. I'm just, I'll, I'll just, you know, leave that there. Um I think that's our most eclectic set of recommendations yet. Maybe, maybe. Um, And on that note, I think we should uh, thank Carolyn for her patience listening to all of that. But also, thank you very much for being on the show today, Carolyn. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. It's fun. 